From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. What might victory look like in Ukraine? I'll ask Colorado Congressman and war veteran Jason Crow, who sits on several powerful committees. He'll reflect on U.S. military support one year in. This notion that we have to just hoard and hold on to all of these things for some future conflict, the fight is now. The conflict that we need to help Ukraine fight and win is this one. Imagine a world if Vladimir Putin succeeds and Ukraine falls. That means that additional countries will fall because he'll feel emboldened and he'll go after Latvia, he'll go after Lithuania, he'll go after Estonia. But then autocrats and dictators around the world, from Iran to Bashar al-Assad in Syria to China, they will all see that the West couldn't do this. We are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We've entered year two of the war between Russia and Ukraine. Here at home, the conflict has spurred conversations about nationalism versus globalism, about what's next, and of course, about partisan politics. Let's hear now from a Colorado congressman who's a member of several powerful committees, including armed services and intelligence. Jason Crow visited Ukraine in May. He's also a war veteran. Congressman, thanks for being with us again. Thanks, Ryan. It's always good to be with you. When you consider the realities of this war entering its second year now, what is the U.S.'s greatest interest? We have a lot of interests, uh, Ryan. I mean, people talk uh, in in D.C. circles, you you often hear this term, the rules-based international order. In plain speak, what that means is since the end of World War II, we have been a, a world largely that is based on rules. It's based on the fact that nations have sovereign rights and that a larger, more powerful country just cannot take by force another country. And that's really what is being contested by Vladimir Putin right now. He wants to rewrite that. So does President Xi of China. And they're attempting to set that new precedent. That's number one. Number two, Coloradans and Americans have a vested interest in a stable, secure, and prosperous Europe. Uh, It's our our largest trading partner combined, all the European nations. And if uh, there's economic instability and if there's war in Europe, that's going to reverberate through our economy, our ability to travel. Uh, We have hundreds of thousands of Americans that live throughout Europe. So we have very immediate vested interests uh, in uh, Ukraine and in a stable Europe as well. And then the third would be food supply. Ukraine remains one of the bread baskets of the world. And if it falls into Russian hands, it's going to cut off food supply to Africa, to the Middle East, and to the United States, causing inflationary pressures, uh, as well as potentially famine in very vulnerable places of the world as well. So we have a lot of interests at play here. To that first point, you talk about the world order. It is also true that since World War II, there has been uh, tension, might be a diplomatic word between the U.S. and Russia and the U.S. and China. 
It's also true that in that time, the United States has invaded Iraq and Afghanistan. It sounds to me like maybe you just don't like it when it's Russia or China doing it. Well, first of all, I reject uh, any type of false equivalency here. Uh, there's no doubt that the United States has had foreign policy and national security missteps. Uh, we went to Afghanistan, by the way, after we were we were attacked brutally on September 11th in 2001. And uh, we went to find those attackers, which, by the way, we did. That war lasted too long, in my opinion. It should have ended a long time ago. And there were a lot of missteps that we're actually looking to address through the Afghanistan War Commission that's underway now that I helped support and create. Uh, Iraq was an intelligence failure. There's no doubt about that. We went in for weapons of mass destruction, but that was a sanctioned military action. But it was based on faulty intelligence. Both of those situations in no way compare to what Vladimir Putin is doing right now without provocation, without any pretense, just the outright brutal invasion uh, of a peaceful neighbor, because in his mind, they don't have the right to exist. Vladimir Putin believes in the old Russian empire, and he has a map in his mind that doesn't match the current map of the world. And that includes Eastern European countries, including Ukraine. And he is attempting to take by force and to rebuild uh, his vision of a Russian empire, regardless of how many lives it takes. It seems that China is embracing that vision. How concerned are you about what we've seen from China lately? I'm very concerned about that. There has been an increased relationship between China and Russia, an economic relationship. China has helped Russia usurp sanctions. And we know that they are seriously considering and even taking some steps to start providing lethal aid, uh, essentially uh, weapons and ammunition to Russia to help Russia fight and win this war. Uh, but it would be a huge mistake by China. I mean, just, listen, President Xi is an autocrat. He's a, he's a dictator. He uh, also is trying to rewrite the rules of the world. They, they don't believe in autonomy. They don't believe in freedom. They don't believe in privacy. They don't believe in democracy. And she and Putin are like-minded in that they would love to see uh, the democratic free nations of this world fail. Uh, and he has an interest in having Putin win this war because he feels like that it degrades the capability of the West to resist what he wants to do mm. uh, in, in Asia, I mean, uh, most notably Taiwan. Taiwan. I mean, that reeks of a proxy war and it feels Cold War-ish to me. What do you think, Congressman? Well, we're not in a Cold War. We're in a very different world. It involves a lot more countries at play. So this is not two great powers playing things out. There's a lot of powerful nations now. The European bloc is powerful. India is asserting themselves. The so-called global South, uh, South America and Africa have a lot of power and influence and they have options now and they have growing economies. And China has 10 times the GDP that the former Soviet Union ever had at the height of the Cold War. So this is a very different scenario. And I, I reject this language around a Cold War because I, I just don't think it captures the complexity and the magnitude of the challenge that we now face. Last Friday, you issued a statement on the one-year anniversary of the war saying Russian President Vladimir Putin had underestimated the grit and determination of the Ukrainian people and the resolve of democracies across the globe. Uh, there was also something of a plug for the Biden-Harris administration and its support of Ukraine. Is there more you'd like from the White House or something different you'd like from the White House? 
Yeah, there is, Ryan. And, and first and foremost, uh, this administration and President Biden have done a remarkable job, truly, of building and leading an international coalition to help Ukraine fight and win. And without the support of the president and, and the Congress and funding, Ukraine would not be in the position they're in right now. The Ukrainians are tremendous fighters. They're fierce. They're resilient. They're gritty. But without the weapons and equipment and financial support that the European countries and the United States have provided, led by the United States, uh, they would not be in this position. So uh, they've done a good job. But I, you know, I learned in war that no day is the same. And you have no ability, while the war still rages, to take a victory lap. Uh, wars always evolve. They change. The needs uh, change. And that's what we're seeing right now. This war is rapidly evolving. And we have to change the nature of our support. I think we have to do things like provide more advanced fighter jets to provide more longer range missiles and rockets so that the Ukrainians can uh, hit Russian supply lines. I think we have to increase our training of the Ukrainians so that they can have a, a more professional force to do the, the type of offensive that uh, they need to do in the spring. And I also think we need to increase sanctions. So there's a lot of things that need to happen, uh, given the way that this is changing and, and how rapidly it's changing. There's an argument being made that U.S. assistance to Ukraine may be weakening our own military and the support we give to other nations. There was a report from the Center for Strategic and International Studies estimating it'll take five years to replenish the supply of Javelin missiles provided to Ukraine, for instance. Uh, as a member, I'll note of the Subcommittee on Warfighter Support, what's your reaction? Yeah, there's no doubt that our supplies and inventories have been um, heavily tapped for this and that our, um, our manufacturing and supply chain capability uh, is uh, being stressed and we're making moves to address that. But, you know, the, this notion that we have to just hoard and hold on to all of these things for some future conflict, the fight is now. I mean, the, the war is now. There is no future conflict. The conflict that we need to help Ukraine fight and win is this one. Uh, imagine a world if Vladimir Putin succeeds and Ukraine falls. That means that uh, additional countries will fall because he'll feel emboldened and he'll go after Latvia, he'll go after Lithuania, he'll go after Estonia, he'll continue to go after Belarus, he'll go after Poland. He won't stop because this is who he is and this is what his goal and his grand vision is. So this will continue. But then autocrats and dictators around the world, from Iran to Bashar al-Assad and Syria to China, they will all see that the West couldn't do this. Uh, and they will feel like they have a blank check to do the same to their weaker neighbors. Taiwan uh, will eventually fall if we're not able to help Ukraine win. Uh, this is not a world that anybody wants to live in. Uh, this is not a world that we don't want to raise our, our kids in because it would be a volatile, dangerous, uh, unstable, and less prosperous world. You're now in the minority in the U.S. House. Is this a view that is shared across the aisle? Where is the tension now with Republicans in control? Uh, what does it mean that you have less power than you did before? Well, this is my first time in the minority, Ryan, so I'm still grappling with that and <laughs> figuring out what that looks like. Mm. But, you know, I remain on some of those bipartisan committees in Congress, you know, the, the Armed Services Committee, the, the Foreign Affairs Committee, the Intelligence Committee. That's where I've done all my work the last two terms. Those committees are, are incredibly bipartisan. 
a lot of the work is done on a consensus basis. And, you know, you don't hear that story. People don't really report on that because, you know, the plane lands safely story doesn't get a lot of, uh, a lot of ink <laughs> these days, but, uh, you know, but um, it, it's true and, and good things are happening. And I will say there is huge support for Ukraine uh, in the United States Congress. Uh, let me just put some perspective on this. There's 435 members of the House. And there's maybe two dozen, maybe two and a half dozen people who are vocally against providing support to Ukraine. That means there are over 400 who are in support of it. That is a vast majority. And I just took a trip to Europe. I'm part of the NATO Parliamentary Assembly, which is NATO's Congress. And that trip I took largely with Republican colleagues. Uh, and they're firmly behind the, um, the effort to, to help Ukraine fight and win. Where is the tension, if it exists right now, between Democrats and Republicans on this issue? Well, I mean, a lot of the Republicans are actually the ones that are pushing to do more. Uh, they want to see increased support and, and um, want to see a change in the nature of support, longer range rockets, uh, more advanced fighters. Uh, so that push is coming in a bipartisan way. And I've, I've joined uh, with a lot of them on that push. So the, I think some of the tension will be just on the nature of oversight. We all take the oversight of the, the money that we've allocated to the Ukraine effort very seriously. I take it seriously. In fact, I authored and led a provision in the uh, DOD budget to compel an enhanced inspector general oversight over the aid that's provided to Ukraine. Where I differ a little bit is some folks that might deal with disinformation or misinformation and say that there's been diversion or there's been abuse. There, there are no known instances of diversion of U.S. weapons by the Ukrainians, period. Is there a limit in your mind? I mean, I don't know if it's a dollar figure, a percentage figure, a gut feeling, a limit as to how much the U.S. would, should commit and for how long? I mean, just given so many of its own domestic economic issues. And I, I know you see the country, this country's economic future as intertwined with Ukraine's, but uh, is there a limit? Yeah, because uh, we are intertwined economically and democratically, I, I think that's the wrong way to look at it, to put a, a dollar limit on it. You know, that's what Vladimir Putin would love to see. Like, he's playing a long game here. And in, in his view, he wants to draw this out for as long as possible. And let me use this example. If you get in the head of Vladimir Putin, I've talked to a lot of our, our former diplomats about this, our intelligence officials. Vladimir Putin believes in this notion of perpetual struggle. He talks about uh, this notion of struggle, and that's the word he uses, struggle, against the West. This is the status quo that he's interested in maintaining forever, because as long as there's struggle, he can maintain his own power and he can build this Russian uh, empire, this revisionist Russian empire that he wants to build. Uh, we obviously don't want perpetual struggle. We want this to end, which is why we need to front load our support uh, to Ukraine and essentially make them a porcupine that cannot be swallowed. Uh, and, and to ensure their sovereignty and their independence. So uh, we're playing off of different timelines right now, and that's why we need to be very aggressive in providing support as quickly as possible and as, as much as possible. A porcupine that cannot be swallowed. What What is the end game then? What does victory look like? Is it a Russian withdrawal? Uh, that seems, I don't know if unlikely is the word, uh, mm -hmm. a pipe dream. <laughs> I mean... If this is a man who's interested in perpetual struggle, isn't that necessarily what he's going to get if he always resists? 
Yeah, I, I, about a week ago, Ryan, I um, actually tweeted out kind of a roadmap for what I think this ultimately would look like. The first step is that the Russian military needs to be degraded so that it can't conduct offensive operations outside of its borders anymore. The Ukrainians have been remarkably effective at doing that. You know, Vladimir Putin actually does not have the same army that he had a year ago. He's lost about 60% of his combat power and his military forces. And it's over, you know, over half of his military is gone. Mm. Uh, he's trying to rebuild that. So step one is, is continue to support the Ukrainians and degrading the Russian military. Step two is preventing Russia from recapitalizing and rebuilding its military. And that's largely a function of sanctions. So putting sanctions on the Russians so they don't have the technology, they don't have the raw materials, the, the supply chain to rebuild uh, that industrial base and, and that equipment that's been lost. Step three is helping modernize the Ukrainian military. This is the porcupine analogy, right? We want to modernize them, equip them with more advanced weapons, train them to be a, a modern advanced force that can conduct what's called combined arms, fire and maneuver warfare, which is something the Russians don't know how to handle and can't fight against. So we need to continue to build the capacity of the Ukrainian military, which, you know, again, is kind of like building an airplane in flight because they're fighting a war and they're also modernizing at the same time. Then the fourth step, and this is really important, after Ukrainians can push uh, the Russians out of Ukrainian territory to some extent, then uh, there has to be a security guarantee, a security umbrella. And that might be some combination of the United States, Germany, France, the UK, maybe the European Union banding together to come to an agreement that um, we won't allow Ukraine to be invaded again. And if we will, we'll step in to help them like we have in the past. Gosh, that fourth item is not small, right? I mean, Ukraine is not a NATO member, but it sounds like you would defend it almost as one, which is an attack against one is an attack against all. Is that a no-fly zone? Is that the start of a global war? And of course, the presence of nuclear weapons plays big into number four. Yeah, well, it's right now it's not a no-fly zone, right? They, the Ukrainians have applied for EU membership, membership in the European Union. They want to apply. They stated their intent to apply uh, for NATO membership. And NATO has an open door policy that says any uh, free and democratic nation can apply. They want what's called a, a membership accessions plan, a map uh, from NATO that tells them the steps that they need to comply with in order to become a member. So in both cases of both EU and NATO, now remember NATO is a defensive military alliance. The EU is a political, economic, and military alliance. It's kind of three parts to the EU, so it's a little bit more complicated than NATO. But in both instances, you cannot become a member of either of those alliances if you're at war. Uh, so Ukraine is precluded from membership right now. So that's why we need to end the war and end hostilities and then outline for them what they need to do to comply with the requirements for membership so they can ultimately become a member, which I support. Uh, but until that happens, there needs to be some kind of security guarantee. But your last point on nuclear weapons, it is true that um, we have to be very mindful and very careful about that. And we've seen no moves in the strategic posture of the Russian nuclear arsenal, but we're keeping a close eye on it. I think it was in May that you were in Ukraine. I think you were there with Speaker Pelosi, then Speaker Pelosi. Do you have plans to go back? I suppose you might not be able to share that from a security standpoint, but um, if you want to answer that, you're welcome to. And if not, what stands out from your time there? 
Yeah, I will go back at some point. I'm not going to say when (laughs) for obvious reasons, (laughs) but, you know, I have a lot of, I've developed a lot of close friendships with the Ukrainian leadership with both military and political, and they invite me back frequently, which of course is a very complicated trip logistically. But yeah, I do intend to go back to show my support uh, at some point uh, in the future here. Who do you think of when you read news of Ukraine? That's a great question. Um, I think about some of the the parliamentarians that I've gotten to know, some of the members of the the Ukrainian Rada. Uh, They're, you know, my my colleagues, so to speak, in their Congress, many of whom have have gone to the front lines to fight, uh, or their loved ones have gone to the front lines to fight, many of whom have young children that have been born in the past year or two that have known nothing but conflict and, and war. I think about my, my friend, the uh, commander of the Ukrainian Special Forces, uh, who um, I met with and spent time with in uh, December, actually, of 2020, before the war started, when I led a congressional delegation of intelligence committee members uh, to try to convince the Ukrainians that the invasion was about to happen, uh, and how he's been on the front lines fighting day and night for a year. But let's not forget, these people are, are fighting for their families, for their neighborhoods. They're fighting against... Uh, a, a military that is committing really unspeakable war crimes, doing terrible crimes against humanity, you know, rape of young children to kidnapping thousands of orphans and sending them into filtration and transition camps in eastern Russia to uh, just executing thousands of, of Ukrainians um, who um, got caught up in the fighting. The rape of children, is that systematic? It is. These aren't one-off cases. The, the Russian military is um, uh, systematically uh, and by design engaging in terror and trying to break the will of the Ukrainian people. I mean, Vladimir Putin is literally trying to freeze and starve uh, and cut off the water to the Ukrainians to break their will. But it just shows that Vladimir Putin doesn't know Ukrainians. Do you think that Putin understands Russians? Like, um, you went through that four-step plan earlier. I didn't hear a step that was about eroding or helping further erode Russian confidence in Vladimir Putin. I mean, I know that's going to start to sound like Castro-Cuba stuff, you know, to send him a pen yeah. that makes his beard fall out or something. But is there work to do there? Well, the answer is yes, but it's extremely complicated, as you might guess. First of all, Vladimir Putin has completed his complete his takeover of media and the messaging machine and the propaganda machine within Russia. So Russians are, are have very little access to reliable information about what's actually happening. Uh, he has uh, been able to put down dissent and opposition uh, through murder, through imprisonment, through brutality. Uh, There's been a brain drain since the war started. About a million Russians have left. And unfortunately, these are folks who actually would form the core of a potential opposition movement. So Mm. the the situation has gotten worse. And the other thing that people need to consider is, you know, if Putin views um, this as existential to his power, uh, he could do something very, um, very dangerous, like use nuclear weapons, for example. Uh, Because when Russian leaders historically lose power, uh, they usually end up dead. Uh, and if he views this as a matter of personal survival, he could get very desperate. And then the other thing you have to consider is that the alternative to Putin, and this might sound like a really crazy thing to think about because Putin is a terrible monster, 
the alternative to Putin may not be better. There are hardliners in Russia who have been criticizing Putin for being too weak, for not using nuclear weapons already. And a lot of these hardliners have a lot of political power and are members of the uh, security services and the military. Uh, and if, if those folks take power, it could be more dangerous for everybody. Wow. The notion of... <laughs> of Putin not being hard line enough. That's, that's fascinating. Congressman, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ryan. Good talking with you. Jason Crow represents the 6th Congressional District. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour as RTD struggles with whether to crack down on all day and night passengers. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. The sounds in nature are like the voices of friends. I know when I hear the first robin every spring what that means. The sound of wind and trees, the bugle of elk. Those are the memories that become the soundtrack to our lives. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. RTD may crack down on passengers who ride buses and trains all day. Critics say that would target people experiencing homelessness. CPR's Nathaniel Minor rode the rails for 20 hours to meet people who'd be affected. It wasn't yet 4 a.m. when the first W-Line train pulled into Union Station on a cold morning last week. Ricky Autry is one of the first passengers to climb aboard. How you doing? How you feeling right now? Yeah, a little cold, but I'm all right. Um, where'd you sleep last night, or did you sleep? I didn't. You didn't sleep? No, it's too cold. Autry says he rode trains as late as he could the night before, and then walked for hours to stay warm and alive. It was a hard night, but he says it's better than the alternative. The shelters out here are overcrowded and full of people with scabies, and I'd rather be out here on the street. Autry says he's been riding RTD trains for months, bouncing from one line to the next, sometimes paying for a fare, sometimes not. Over the course of a whole day, I interviewed about 15 people like Autry, homeless and using RTD to stay warm. If you time it just right, you can ride almost 24 hours a day, but you just got to time it right. RTD may try to put a stop to this. Commuters say they feel unsafe on RTD, and the agency is trying to fix that. It wants to explicitly ban people from, quote, riding the system indefinitely after their fares expire. RTD says the changes aren't meant to target any one group in particular, but rather to ensure safety and keep passengers accountable. The RTD board will vote on it this summer. I told Autry about RTD's plans, and he broke down. He says he was a successful business owner until his life fell apart a few years ago. And now he just feels beat down. I am a person. I do exist, and I do have feelings. This kind of stuff can happen to anybody. And a little compassion can go a long way. The train rolls on. A man starts yelling at everyone and no one. Then he pulls out a multi-tool and points it at another passenger and me. He slowly walks toward us and then stops and goes back to his seat. I switch cars at the next station. 
By about 5.30, more commuters are on board. Jonathan Bissett says he's been riding RTD for years, and he used to like it a lot. Now, he carries weapons. He nearly used them a few months ago when two men tried to grab his scooter. So I kind of like pulled out the baton, got it ready to ignite, took out my taser, engaged it. As soon as I got off the train at Union Station, I ran. Bissett says he's complained to RTD about the constant drug use he regularly sees, but it keeps happening. He's supportive of RTD's proposed changes, but what he really wants is more enforcement now. I keep riding all day. I see people wearing blankets like jackets. A young couple who say they're homeless because of high rent. I see lots of drug use and only a few security guards. The sky is mostly dark when I meet Brandon Copeland. He says he's been riding RTD for seven hours already. What would it mean to you if they start cracking down on riding all day? There's going to be a lot of people going to freeze there, literally. By 10.30, it's about five below zero. I'm on the last W-Line train into downtown with Aaron Gallegos. He's just 21 years old and became homeless a year and a half ago when his mother died of COVID. He likes the trains because he can mostly keep to himself. I don't like fighting. I'm not a hurtful man. I don't like to cause any problems. What does being on the train give you then? It gives me peace and freedom. Gallegos was one of only a few homeless people who told me that they liked the idea of RTD's new proposed rules. He sees the train as almost a sacred space, and he thinks other people abuse it. We pull into Union Station at 11 o'clock and step out into the bitter, dark cold. There's one more train tonight, but it would leave Gallegos at a desolate suburban station. Security guards are already on board. They'll clear the train just 45 minutes from now. Gallegos hesitates, and then he climbs on board for one more ride. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. And a note that the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless is a financial supporter of CPR News. Read Nathaniel's story with photos by Kevin Beatty at denverite.com. For 16-year-old Ella Winthers, it's a double-edged sword to be a Gen Zer. So much good is in her world. Yet there's so much pressure to do good, in essence, to save the world. If you've ever had a long conversation with someone in my generation, you've probably heard this idea of, well, the world's going to die, and I'm going to die with it. So, so what's the point? And at least to me, I don't think that a lot of us truly think that. Ella is a junior at Wheat Ridge High School near Denver. She gave a TEDx youth talk called It's Not Our Job to Save the World. And she spoke about it with my colleague, Nathan Heffel. I want to start with that double-edged sword reference. Uh, in your talk, you mentioned a historical fable your teacher told you about a king and a pauper switching places, which was amazing for the pauper, right? He gets all this, the trappings of being a king until he looks up over the throne and he sees a sword hanging just above him. Why did you connect with that fable that your teacher told you? I think I connected with it so much because it was first told to me during the pandemic over a Zoom lecture. It was really of, of her speaking to us almost kind of like the way you think of like a really wise person telling a kid a story, but it was just to help us see her. And so that really connected with me. And when I was thinking 
of how I wanted to do this talk, I remembered that story and just that feeling it brought to me of being heard and of her hearing us. And it made me feel really safe. And I think there is this feeling, as with all older generations thinking about younger generations, that thank goodness they're here. You know, we're in good hands with the next generation. And and you mentioned your TED Talk feeling that pressure that it's all on you now. We're going to back away and just say, well, <laughs> we tried, right? I mean, part of it makes me feel really happy. There's something really empowering about a bunch of adults coming to you and telling you, I believe in you. I trust you to be able to solve these issues. And I think that's where a lot of the drive of my generation comes from is just that trust and empowerment. But it's also this, what if I screw up? What if all of this is on me and the world is dying by 2050? There's going to be more plastic in the ocean than fish. All of these things are happening and they're all on my shoulders. No one else seems to be fixing them. And that's insanely stressful. And just to know that that threat of the world as we know it being so incredibly different in such a near future, it really changes how you look at a lot of things and adds a lot of stress just to daily life. That brings up this question, what makes the pressure that you're feeling different from, let's say, the fear of of a generation during the Cold War and, and terrorism, let's say, for millennials, things like that? What makes your pressure different? Ah, I... When I started this, I actually asked that question to my teacher because she is a boomer. And she was talking about a lot of the similarities between that boomer generation when they were young and Gen Z now. And I'm not entirely sure that the pressure and experience is all that different. I think a lot of the feelings are the same. But with terrorism and the Cold War, there's a clear threat there. You can very clearly blame, oh, it's the Russians or, oh, it's nuclear bombs or, oh, I'm scared an aircraft's going to come over our school. But more with what my generation has, there's less of that clear threat, less of a black and white enemy. And the enemies that there are, you can't really fight. You can't fight the ocean. You can't fight plastic. You can't fight carbon dioxide. So there's a lot more of that stress and anxiety and even anger. That I feel like that makes that anxiety sit a lot deeper in you. Because you can't blame it on something, so it makes it a lot harder to look at and reconcile with. It's this feeling of having that power to change everything, but also, in a sense, feeling powerless. Yeah. There's so much power that has been given to my generation, and yet there's so little we can do getting people to listen to the things that we say because we're so young. We're not as old as many of the other generations. We don't have that experience. And so a lot of what we have to say gets discounted because of that. And I think along with that, you mentioned that there is something that people in my generation and and the older generations need to hear. Do you you remember what that is? Yeah, that other generations, older generations, the pressure that they put on us and that potential that they see in us, they have that too. The older generations, they're just as capable. They're just as smart. They're just as driven as we are. I'm hoping people are hearing this and they leave my talk feeling a little more inspired and like they can do a little more. But also, I can't see those people. It kind of feels like I'm throwing a fishing rod out and I don't know if the fish are going to bite, but all I can do is hope that they do. According to the American Psychological Association, 90% of your generation reported psychological or physical symptoms due to stress over the last year. And they say 70% said anxiety and depression are significant problems among your peers. 
Ellie, you mentioned similar statistics in your TED Talk. Do you think that's so because your generation is 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 much more open and acknowledging of stress, or is there something more there? I think there's something more there. We're definitely a lot more open and talk more openly about it, but I don't think that contributes to it being there. I think it might calm to know that other people feel the same thing, but also just... I mean, we're surrounded by that social media and social media is not all bad, but there's a lot of stress that can be brought from it. And just being so constantly connected, there's almost a fear of not being connected, like FOMO just driven up in all aspects of life. It seems now that high schoolers were doing more assignments. We're spending more time in school. Just one extracurricular, my friend and I calculated it out. It's like seven hours a week, Mm. if not more. Some weeks, you know, 20, 30 hours we're pulling in that one extracurricular. And I think a lot of stress is just stemming from that. There's so much to do that all has to be done at once. On top of the fact that there's this existential crisis that you feel. Yeah, it's just, it's thing after thing after thing. At that top level, there's stress. At that bottom level, there's stress. And everywhere in between, there's there's nowhere where you really get a break from it. And that downtime that you do get a break is being spent trying to connect with all your friends and getting even more stress from that. And your talk also reaches out to your generation directly and, and takes that point to heart. I see how much effort you spend on everything, how much dedication you have. And I am so proud of you. But it is not your job to have to be there for everyone else, for everything else, 100% of the time. You are worth it. The foundation of a building is just as important as every other piece in it. Ella, that is such a powerful statement. It's almost a rallying cry to your generation. Why did you include that in your talk? I love the building metaphor because it kind of brings together that There are all of these individual pieces. There are the beams and the concrete and the electrical and the HVAC systems. And they all need to come together to make a building that people want to be in. And you can't be all those pieces at once. But when you all come together, you can create something beautiful. But that doesn't mean any piece is less valuable than the others or just because it's small doesn't mean it's less important. And it was a way of telling that story that I had never heard before because it wasn't just all the pieces coming together to make a whole, it was emphasizing the importance of each piece and that each piece is so meaningful. At the conclusion of your TED Talk, you said you're sick and tired of not being heard. Beyond what we've spoken about today, what do you think your generation and older generations need to know? I think they need to know that there will be people that will listen to you. It can be really hard to find that sometimes, and sometimes you can feel like there is no one around you, whether that's in having your opinion heard or just with friendships. But there is people out there that want to hear your story and that want to hear your experience and that want to be around you. And if you look long enough, you will find those people. Ella, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Ella Winthers is a junior at Wheat Ridge High School. She spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel as part of our Gen Z series. You can see Ella's TEDx Youth Talk at CPR.org. The next TEDx Youth at Cherry Creek event is tomorrow in Brighton. When we come back, how climate change might factor into home buying. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
The humble donkey is central to Colorado's early mining history. The tough, sure-footed little animals carried millions of dollars in gold and silver out of mines on steep, narrow trails. Miners wrote stories and songs about trusted burrows like Prunes, whose monument still stands on Fair Play's Front Street. He arrived in the 1860s and became one of the most reliable and recognizable burrows in South Park. After decades of hard work, Prunes retired, free to roam about town. Residents gave him affection and his favorite food, flapjacks. In 1930, a blizzard trapped the aging donkey in a shed for days. Prunes was rescued but never fully recovered. In front of weeping miners, Prunes was put down. He was 63. A year later, his heartbroken owner followed. After a deathbed request to have his ashes buried next to Prunes, the beloved borough of Fairplay. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Cobol. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Half of Coloradans live in places prone to wildfire, according to the state. But would having that information actually change your decision about where to live? Ed Kearns' nonprofit calculates a property's climate susceptibility to fire, floods, and extreme heat. The nationwide service is called Risk Factor. The scores are listed on Redfin and Realtor.com in addition to Risk Factor's own site. We spoke in December. Ed, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. You're in charge of the data science behind these risk calculations. I'll note that you used to work at NOAA. That's the the Federal Atmospheric Agency. But you saw an even greater opportunity to help people. Help people what exactly? To make decisions about how they're going to be responding to climate change and to make those decisions based upon information and data that they can trust. And is it that that data, do you think, is just not widely available, perhaps from the federal government, for instance? Luckily, in the federal government, there's been a big push over the last couple of years on open data, making these data available to the public and to private companies and academics and others that can use this information. However, the data are still difficult to use. Uh, They require a high level of of expertise to understand them. And to translate them into usable form is something that we're doing at First Street. First Street is the foundation that created Risk Factor. And to give people a sense uh, for how this works, I typed in a friend's address, Ed, who lives on the outskirts of Aurora, and it generated the following. This property has risk from two of three environmental factors, minimal flood, moderate fire, four out of 10, and moderate heat, three out of 10. To ask plainly, I guess, is there a score so high that someone should consider moving? I mean, is that what you want people to do with this? Uh, We want people to to dig in deeper to understand what that score means. So if it's a 10 out of 10, it may be very alarming, but they should find out more, dig into the details and understand why that property is scored so high. Mm. It may mean that uh, that's an unacceptable level of risk that you're living with. It may mean that you can do things to your property or your house to reduce that risk. If it's for flood, for example, you may want be able to raise your house up on stilts. If it's fire, you may be able to cut defensible space around your home or make other modifications to your home so it can survive the kind of exposure that a 10 out of 10 is conveyed. In other words, is this as specific as knowing that there are like too many trees too close to a particular property? Is that is that how dialed in you get? We do get dialed in very, very specifically. So we try to make this information personal. 
So it helps you make the decisions about, hey, do I have to do something to protect my investment, protect my family, protect my home, protect my business? And if I do those things, would my score come down? The exposure score will still stay high unless some of those things that are being done, and, and then wildfire is usually done at the community level, of doing prescribed burns or thinning of forests or cutting fire breaks, things that are going to make it more difficult for fire to get to your home in the first place. But the, the score is about the exposure to the hazard. Uh, to be abundantly clear, mitigation, the notion of thinning uh, what kind of vegetation is around your structure, you know, that that makes a real difference. But I also hear you saying that you could take this information and you could lobby for some more community level change. So in that way, you're kind of empowering people in a democracy, maybe to lobby their local leaders, for instance. Let's talk more. I'm, I'm curious about the heat rating. So this home in Aurora had a moderate a score, three out of 10. What would someone do in terms of their susceptibility to extreme heat? That feels a little less within my power to change. In some cases, it may be including uh, cooling in your home, air conditioning. You know, there's a lot of people that live in, in the mountains or live like in the Pacific Northwest that don't have air conditioning. And as these extreme heat waves and heat domes become more prevalent uh, in the future under climate change, uh, taking those kind of measures that you can get through uh, an extreme heat event without damaging your health is is something that, you yeah, you could do at a, at a personal level. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people in Colorado who have not historically had air conditioning who are either thinking about it or perhaps adding it. Although that's a whole different conversation about what it means to be drawing power for air conditioning in the face of climate change. Uh, okay, so, you know, in an ideal world, this would lead to some sort of behavior change. Do you have evidence that it has done so? Well, Realtor and Redfin are our partners in distributing this information. And Redfin just recently published a study that did show that their customers to the Redfin.com platform do start to make choices towards less risky homes with the more exposure that they have to the risk information. So we're very excited by these early results. And it shows that, you know, given this kind of information about climate risk and fire and flood and heat risk, that Americans are making decisions to accommodate them. You know, the Marshall Fire a year ago surprised people, I think because wildfires are so often associated with forests rather than the plains. Um, yeah. th that is erroneous even before the Marshall Fire, but it became, I think, very clear a year ago. I wonder if there are other surprises in general. What surprised me overall as part of the project was the kind of personal connection that happens, even with a you know career scientist such as myself and, and my peers around the country, uh, as I talk with them, they all have a very similar experience as when, uh, uh, when you go and type in your address. All of a sudden, you've made a connection between you know these obscure climate models, and it makes it very, very personal for every American when you see how it's changing that risk at your home. And it kind of you know sparks the thought of, okay, now what can I do about it? Do you hope that this leads to fewer people living in what's called the WUI, the wildland urban interface. In other words, where the city meets the forest. These are often very pretty places, close to jobs with views, but also lots of tinder. I think people can make their own decisions about this. My fear is that people go live in the WUI and don't understand what their level of risk is. I want them to know that level and make an informed decision because, you know, people will always want to live in these beautiful places. People will want to live on the beach. These are great places. 
But if you do so, do so uh, as an informed consumer, knowing that you are assuming a lot of risk when you do these types of things. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Ryan. Ed Kearns is Chief Data Officer at First Street Foundation, which produces Risk Factor. The tool calculates flood, extreme heat, and wildfire susceptibility for properties across the country. We spoke in December. The slopper is a Pueblo specialty. So basically, the slopper is a burger submerged in green chili. That includes the bun and usually cheese, onions, and even french fries sometimes. And that is my colleague, KRCC's Shauna Lewis, who's based in Pueblo. Traditionally, it's served in a bowl, and when I say submerged, I mean it looks like a bowl of green chili. You have to dig in, and then you'll find the burger and all the other goodies. Go to five places for a slopper, Shauna says, and you might get five different takes. It might be an open-faced burger. It could be two burger patties or more. And it could be more of a smothered burger served on a plate instead of in a bowl. The green chili is typically made with Pueblo green chili peppers. These are peppers that are grown on the farmland surrounding the city. More formally, they're known as marisol peppers because they actually point up towards the sun as they grow instead of hanging down. Well, the Pueblo Chili Growers Association and the Greater Pueblo Chamber of Commerce conducted a survey, Name the City's Best Slopper Joints. Shauna shares the winners at krcc.org, 10 altogether. Gray's Course Tavern snagged the top honors. It's been around since like the 1930s, and it's one of the places that lays claim to actually serving up the first slopper way back when. Sloppers are on a lot of menus in Pueblo, not just the 10 that got the most votes. And some of those places make a pretty mean slopper too. So check them out and you might have your own top 10 slopper list. And if you've really got an appetite. Major League Eating, the people who bring you the hot dog eating competition, now hosts the World Slopper Eating Championship at the Colorado State Fair in Pueblo. Now with Green Chili Stew by jazz guitarist Ken Navarro. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News with thanks to a team that's anything but green. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Oh, oh, oh.